You're about to experience ultrasounds, an uplifting soulful journey into the spheres of exotic electronic music. Brought to you by DJ E-Love. Music for your mind, body and soul. Welcome, welcome everybody. And tonight we are blessed to have Mark Waldman. He's one of the world's leading experts on communication spirituality and the brain. His research has been published in peer-viewed journals throughout the world and featured in Time Magazine, The Washington Post, New York Times, Forbes, Entrepreneur, Investors, Business Weekly and Oprah Magazine. He's appeared on PBS television and NPR radio and received a distinguished speaker award from the Mind Science Foundation. Mark has actually authored 12 books, including the national bestseller, How God Changes Your Brain. And this book was selected as one of the nine must-read books for 2012. His new book, Words Can Change Your Brain, teaches readers how to rapidly build trust and intimacy with others. And one thing that we all are looking for in (laughs) our conversations is to resolve conflicts before they ever begin. And the compassionate communication strategies are a part of lawyer Marymount University's executive MBA program. I want to welcome onto the show, Mark Waldman. Thank you so much for having me on. And I have to say, of all of the radio voices and all of the interviewers I have listened to over the years, your voice is utterly incredible, and it embraces so many of the basic principles that create the best form of communication between people. Thank you, sweetheart. I'd like to just point out a couple of the strategies that you're using because anyone can learn these very simple techniques. For example, you speak almost melodically. You're speaking almost with a rhythmic type of voice. And when you bring a poetic sense into your pacing of words, it turns out But this is a better form of communication than the way we normally chatter on and on and on. Same thing with music. Music is a better form of language. It actually stimulates the language centers of the brain. But what you do that is particularly remarkable is that you have a low, soft, warm voice. And recently there was a study done at Harvard using uh, testing acupuncture on a particular type of surgery. And it was found that if you put the acupuncture needles in, and this was sham acupuncture, it was, it was even fake acupuncture, you would get a placebo effect. You would get about 35% of the people would find improvement. But when the practitioner or the doctor or the therapist uses a warm voice like what you have, the healing rate went from 35% to 65%. It doubled. Wow, that's very significant. It's very important to know that the human brain can only hold about 10 seconds of conversation in its mind from what somebody else says. So if you speak for two minutes, that person is only going to remember 10 seconds and probably the least important part of what you've had to say. So we have a funny rule. If you really want to communicate effectively, speak one brief, slow, warm sentence and kind of take a deep breath in and relax and let the other person respond. If they start talking about something different, you know they haven't been listening to you in the first place. They had too much conversational noise going on in their own head. It's called inner speech. Is that from their own brain or is it from the person speaking to them? It's from their own brain. Inner speech starts when we're about one year old. We start having inner dialogue. A young child will pick up a block and say, I am putting this block on top of the other one. I'm going to knock over these blocks. And then the inner speech goes silent. Inner speech is necessary in order to build the communication centers in the brain, and it never goes away. What it does do is fall into the background, into unconsciousness. Now, when we get under stressful situations, we oftentimes start to move our lips if we're, trying to, if we're trying to struggle with a difficult problem. The problem is, is that we have all this chatter and it's going, along, it's going on in the front of our brain, in the frontal lobe processes where consciousness takes place. And it blocks us 
from getting into deeper levels of awareness, awareness about ourselves, intuitional awareness, awareness that tells us what the social nature of the other person is. So we can't even really be empathetic with another person. We can't really understand what they're saying if we don't stop this noisy chatter, which, you know, sometimes just taking a few deep breaths and slowing down your speech will do. And then when you do that, when you force yourself to limit what you have to say to one small 10-second sentence, your brain begins to work really hard to select the best possible words. And in those gaps and spaces, intuitional awareness begins to emerge. And this is what some people would consider to be higher wisdom or inner wisdom or even the voice of God in spiritual communities. And it's an incredible way to rapidly get in touch with deeper layers and values of your own self. And when you impart that to the other person, when you speak slowly and briefly and warmly, one of the most interesting things that happens is that the other person's brain begins to fire in exactly the same way that your brain does. We're close to it. And that's what we call neural resonance. That's what allows us to fully understand and experience as close as possible what's going on in another person's thoughts and feelings. You mentioned anger or stress, and I wanted to ask what happens to the brain when anger is expressed or experienced. The moment we express anger, the moment we even see a negative word like no, this shuts down decision-making processes in our frontal lobes. It hijacks our ability to be logical and reasonable, but more important, even the slightest irritation. Oh, darn, my computer didn't come on. Oh, I just tripped over something. Why didn't that person, why didn't my kid pick up his room, clean up his room this morning? Each one of those little irritating thoughts interferes with one of the most important and delicate circuits in the brain, the part of the brain that allows us to feel love and compassion towards ourselves and other people. So the slightest bit of anger, just seeing the word no for less than one second, if I have you in a brain scan machine, we can see that a dozen stress neurochemicals are being released. And the longer you stay irritated and frustrated at anything, you quickly begin to damage the memory circuits in your brain. So this would actually mean that there's a memory dysfunction? People who get chronically angry, people who focus on their own low self-esteem or they blame somebody else who are cranky and irritable and upset, even if it's just a mild, worrisome kind of thought, this is enough to upset the delicate processes of learning and memory formation and memory recall. So it's really, really important, no matter how you look at the research, you have to have literally a five-to-one positivity ratio. For every negative thought or feeling you have, you better consciously and unconsciously generate five to six positive thoughts and feelings. When that positivity ratio, and this is the work of Barbara Fredrickson that puts positive psychology on the map, if it falls below three-to-one, relationships begin to fall apart and businesses begin to stagnate. What happens if someone has trauma, a stressful or angry experience in their life early on? Well, trauma is different. Trauma is pain. Anger is, a, is one particular emotion, a very primal emotion, but pain is a different emotion. And so when we experience an awfully loud noise or we see some awful thing, somebody, a child hit by a car or something like this. This event literally is not only burned into our memories, but it's almost like the memory is fragmented and you'll see that little different pinpoints light up throughout the brain. Now, some of the newest research shows, and this is, I think, I don't think I've ever shared this with anybody publicly before. It's called memory reconsolidation. We've just learned that each time you recall a memory from the past, the actual recollection of the memory changes the nature of the memory itself. And then whatever you're doing at the moment of recollection, that gets embedded back into the memory. 
So if I take, so if I consciously and deliberately choose to recall a negative memory or a traumatic event while I stay deeply relaxed when I'm at the same time like maybe holding, maybe I'll take a sheet of paper and I'll make a list of all the most wonderful things that that I value in life. And I think about that list and I keep myself very relaxed as I recall a painful memory or a trauma. That memory now literally gets imbued with a sense of relaxation. And when it gets re-embedded back into long-term memory, the next time it's called up, the relaxed form of relaxed memory comes up. Now, this is the really interesting thing. The most erroneous memories in the world that we have are autobiographical memories. And they're also the most easiest to fake. It's very easy to implant in somebody's mind childhood events that never occurred. Wow. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> but it's really cool to know that, oh, if, if, if we have a disturbing event from the past, to know that we can recall it in different ways, that we can consciously sit down, like we can recall it running up and down the block, for example. You know, when you're really working hard, when you're really doing aerobic exercise, you can't get caught up in the same depression or anxiety or irritability that the original memory caused. So there are many new strategies we now have available for helping people to eradicate their past. And this is the other really, really cool thing. I'm becoming convinced that 90% of all negative thoughts and feelings, our anxieties, our self-doubts, our worries, our fears, 90% of them, if not more, are total fabrications created by an imaginary mind. And so we get into the habit of imagining negative scenarios, and another part of our brain, the thalamus, reacts to those fantasy thoughts as if it was a sensation coming in from the outside world. So again, the cool thing about this is that you can realize that you don't need to spend years in a therapist's office. You might go to what I call a neuro coach. So when I work with a client, for example, I ring a bell. We create a deep sense of relaxation. I ask the person to relax their whole body. We go into having a very soft-spoken, brief dialogue and exchange of words, and we very rapidly take a look at a person's anxiety or fear or worry. And many times it's as simple as simply saying, do you have any evidence that this negative feeling or thought actually exists in the world? Think about it. Think about the last time you were worrying about something, something earlier today or yesterday. Did the worry actually have anything to do with what was actually happening around you at that moment? Probably not. <laughs> My question is to that, why do people choose to focus on negative or fabricated? Is it our imaginations? What is that? It's not our fault. Okay. It's the fault of our crappy brain. <laughs> our brain is designed for survival-oriented reasons to remember and recall and pay the most amount of attention to any actual or perceived threat that comes in from the outside world. So our dog and our cat, you know, if it hears a loud noise, it'll perk up, it'll look around, it'll go investigate. If things are safe, what will they do? They'll go back to the couch and take a nap. <laughs> now, human beings have this giant frontal lobe, and in particular the prefrontal part of the brain. And this is the area not only where consciousness resides, but on the right frontal lobe, there's usually a constant flow of negative fantasies going on. What if? Hmm, if I take a step into the road... What if I get hit by a car? Maybe there's a car coming. Maybe there's a danger. So it's busy looking out for all of the possible negative things that may happen. Meanwhile, your left frontal lobe is kind of focusing on, yeah, I really want to cross that street. There's a great ice cream store across the way, and I'm really looking forward to that. You have going on in this incredible creative imagination of the human brain an endless stream of positive and negative fantasies. But remember, the rest of the brain, this doesn't, this doesn't happen with other animals, so they, are, you know, they, are, they only pay attention 
to negative experiences coming in from the outside world. Our poor, stupid brains can't tell the difference between a fantasy and reality. So when we're fantasizing about something terrible that might happen, a message gets sent to the amygdala. The amygdala says, the sky is falling. <laughs> so you look up, and the sky looks like it's going, you know, isn't going to fall. So we have kind of this stupid brain that puts far more emphasis on negativity because it's a threat to our survival. And what we have to do is just take a step back. So mindfulness training, which is a new form of, it grew out of meditation practices, is now the most effective way for dealing with anxiety. And what do you do? You train yourself to sit down in a chair, you remain really relaxed, and you just watch all of the positive and negative thoughts, that inner speech, that's constantly floating in and out of consciousness. But you sit there and you watch it. So you're developing what's called an observing self. You're disconnecting. So there's you watching your thoughts. And the coolest thing about this experience is that you begin to realize that this you who's watching your thoughts is different than you who is doing all the thinking. <laughs> and then you begin to notice that you're watching yourself, watching you, and then the whole internal structure falls apart and you begin to get a glimpse of how much we live in this thought-filled fantasy imagination. And then it becomes easy to choose to focus in on the negative thoughts and fantasies or to focus in on the positive thoughts and fantasies. So you can retrain your brain to focus on positivity. And it only takes a second to see whether or not a threat or an imaginary thought is a real threat in the world or just a figment of your imagination. If it's a figment of your imagination, you can actually yell at it and say, stop that. You can turn it off. You can suppress that negative thought, and you can immerse yourself in the positivity, which is also a fantasy, that things are going to be quite, quite wonderful. And when you do that, that type of positive thinking stimulates the motivational centers of your lower brain. It loves the experience of positive fantasies. And that's what actually makes your body, makes your brain decide to move your body to have more and more and more and more of those positive thoughts and experiences. How long does this take from your experience? Are we looking at one session and bang, you start kind of being there or? Well, you know, this is, this is a tricky area. Uh, <laughs> I, had a I had a client, I had a client today who kept arguing with me that she wasn't attractive. You know, and I said, look, you know, take a picture of yourself, hand it to one of your friends, go out there down to a, have them go out to the supermarket and just have them rate on a scale of one to ten. And everyone's going to say you're an eight, nine, or ten. And so I gave her ten reasons why she's such an incredible person, but I said one additional thing. I said to her, you know, there is one problem you're going to have in the dating world. She's 32, she's very successful, and she makes so much money, we happen to know that uh, men feel a little bit insecure when a woman is making more money than them. So what does she do? I've given her 10 reasons why she's one of the most successful, beautiful, attractive, uh, interesting, compassionate women out there. Her mind immediately zooms into this, oh no, Nobody's going nobody's to want to ever marry me because, because I make too much money. So in her situation, I have to keep hammering away at these. And so sometimes we'll just have, you know, we'll just have like a 15-minute session every two weeks. But for the majority of people, I'll walk into a room full of 200 people, and I'll ask them, just take on a piece of paper, write down three of your major worries and fears and doubts, three things that you don't like about yourself on a piece of paper. And then I ask them, okay, now take a moment. Is this actually happening in the moment? Now the answer is no, because they're all being entertained by this uh, goofy neuroscientist standing up on the stage. So I'm saying, well, in this moment, you're none of those things, are you? You have to step out of this present moment. You have to step out of reality to immerse yourself in your worries, fears, and doubts. So one time I'm doing this and we're running out of time and the person who is leading, John Azraf, uh, who is leading uh, this particular conference, he starts raising his hands up higher. He wants me to raise the energy of the room. 
And so I started acting like uh, Tony Robbins on steroids. And I said, now take that piece of paper, crumble it up, take all of your worries, fears, and doubts, and I want you to throw them away. I want you to take every form of negativity you have, and I want you to forgive yourself and anybody you hold a grudge against. There were 250 people in the room, and 50 people came up to me because it was the day before Father's Day in tears. They said for the first time in their life, they they forgave their father. So maybe it is possible to fast-track psychological development. Maybe it is possible to get rid of all of these negative feelings and beliefs we have because they are just imaginary to start out with. I mean, this was a big discovery for me quite recently because, you know, I went through 15 years of psychoanalysis. And so I had therapists that helped me dig up every little tiny negative thing in my past. But then I suddenly started going back through elementary school and high school, recalling every single moment. I could recall riding a bicycle in second grade. I could tell you where the cracks were in the cement. And I began to realize that I had hundreds of okay moments and only a couple of dozen of negative moments. And somehow in therapy, I ended up making those few dozen negative moments, my entire life story. At that moment, my anxiety disappeared and never came back. Because I realized that I was trying to get rid of a problem that never existed. It's interesting you mentioned school. Why haven't we been taught this from the very beginning? Because we went through the entire 20th century based upon an astonishing discovery by Freud, which is that there was an unconscious process. But Freud was only looking at particular individuals who were extraordinarily anxious. And most of us did not know that Freud's process of free association, where you lie on the couch and you remain deeply relaxed and you recall all of these memories, was in itself that cathartic experience. The notion was to simply become aware that you had these negative thoughts and feelings. Unfortunately, many therapists began to say, let's find a fast-track way to find out what the problem is. And that fit in so well with the American model of health. You don't go to a doctor to be told how to be healthy. You go to a doctor to find out what's wrong with you and to fix it. So we ended up all going off to therapists to find out what was wrong with us, created a bunch of fantasies and imaginations about what was wrong with us, kept repeating and looking at them until they became real in our mind, and then we spend the next 20 years trying to get rid of this reality that we artificially constructed. Now that's crazy. (laughs) It is crazy, and it flows over into our prison system and our psychiatric system and our hospital system. It flows everywhere where people give up on other people. Well, again, we go back to that situation where the brain just pays close attention to negative events and news. You and I know, you know, because we're involved with different aspects of the news media, that over the past 30 years, crime continually drops. Murder continually drops. Theft continually drops. But our news coverage continually increases it. People have tried to have news programs with happiness. And they kind of fall flat. I always find it funny. I, you know, I live here in the Los Angeles area, and like in Tampa, you know, it, it hardly rains. And, you know, coming on at 9 o'clock in the evening... News at 11, incredible storm to hit Los Angeles. And then I look outside, you know, there's like a cloud in the sky and that's about it. So news media have gotten very good at dramatizing the tiniest things because otherwise most of our brain is going to go to sleep like that cat or dog on the couch. And unfortunately in politics, this is where words really do make a difference. When you speak negatively for, about somebody else, Even if you know it's a lie, there's a part of your brain that accepts it as truth. So doing, you know, mudslinging campaigns turns out to quite effectively do a lot of damage. We, in our books, make a very clear statement that negative speech is 
not only damaging to the speaker's brain, but to the listener's brain as well. Yes. In my opinion, also an energetic entrainment happens on these subtle levels, like we do it with movie stars. People gossip about them and there's magazines all over the place. And I always feel that this is such a sensitive, private thing, you know? Why pry and make up lies about people and then do it to sell magazines? Because it fills magazines. But there's another aspect, because when you bring up movie stars, here you hit the flip side of the coin. Human brains are also absolutely fascinated with incredible success stories. So programs about the rich and famous also fascinate us. And you might be surprised at the reason for this. This is part of the... I'm, we're create, I'm writing a new book now called uh, God Can Make You Rich, The Neuroscience of Inner and Outer Wealth. And one of the basic principles that's grown out of the field of neuroeconomics is that we are programmed from the moment of birth to make as much money and to gather as much objects on the material level as possible. It's like the desire to acquire more and more and more. You can actually flash a coin for one twentieth of a second. And when you're in a brain scan machine, this will actually motivate you to use more force in any action that you're doing. And you don't even know that you've seen a coin. So money is as much of an influential force as negativity is. And so we're driven to acquire. If we don't want the money, we want the things that we can do with money. If you ask people a question, if you ask them, would you rather be, would you rather be the happiest person in the world or the wealthiest person in the world? Usually in the audience, 98% will say happiest. And then I ask them to take a step back, to breathe deeply and relax, and say, spend a full minute thinking about all of the things you can do if you were the wealthiest person in the world. And think about all the things you can do if you were the happiest person in the world. When people meditate on that, 98% of the room raises their hands to be the wealthiest person in the world because they know that they can bring so much happiness to themselves and others if they had unlimited resources. So it isn't that money is the root of all evil, or even that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's when we forget what we can do with that money to help and be of service to others. And here, another part of the human brain kicks in. Because... Although we seem to be born to be incredibly greedy and selfish, we are also born to punish other people who act with greed and selfishness. It's called altruistic punishment. And so there's this very interesting biological dynamic that takes place. In public and in the world, we are rewarded by others if we are generous and fair, and we are punished if we are unfair so the best way to do business in the world, and this is what I'm teaching because I'm on the faculty at, in the College of Business at Loyola Marymount University, and it's being taught at Claremont University and at Harvard, that if you want to be successful at business, you need to start out by being the most generous, caring, loving individual possible. That's what builds lifelong loyalty and trust and allegiance in your customers. I think that's a very beautiful message. It is, and actually giving them more than they expect. Yes, absolutely. Always give more than they expect. And then they'll be so inc incredibly appreciative that when they really do need something, they're going to... Oh, we always, we, in, in our work, we always leave cell phones on in the background because anytime you hear a bell, it's a reminder to stop in the middle of a sentence, take a deep breath in and relax and come back into that present moment. <sighs> we get very excited by the positive things that we project onto the future and we get very anxious about the negative things we project into the future. But there's another place where the brain hardly spends any time at all. And I think you can guess what that is. 
<laughs> Go ahead. In this present moment. I was going to say being here now. <laughs> being here now, exactly. We have to train ourselves. It's the last thing this noisy frontal lobe wants to do. It just loves to dream up um, you know, positive and negative scenarios about the future based upon stuff in the past. So again, in mindfulness, when you sit back, since you can't really turn that noise off, it's very funny. When we put people in brain scan machines while they're doing different kinds of meditations and prayers, their frontal lobes become more active. That makes us scratch our head. It, you know, it looks like you're, you should be thinking more. <laughs> but, you know, the response is from people, I'm not thinking at all. But in this state, this is where a non-thinking form of awareness begins to increase. This is where you begin to use your intuition. And in that sense, you will feel very much in the present moment. You'll respond precisely to what that person says. That's what we describe in our book, Words Can Change Your Brain. And the more you stay in the present moment, using slow, positive language, staying utterly relaxed, the other person begins, their brain begins to neurologically resonate to yours. And literally, within three or four minutes, you could be having the most profoundly intimate conversation, even even with a stranger. I've had that experience on an airplane. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in the present moment. There's nothing to do. If we let go of all of that, what would it be like? What happens if we're in the present moment? Well, we're really aware that there's not so much negativity going on. You cannot have low self-esteem and be in the present moment. You also can't be greedy and arrogant if you're in the present moment. The present moment is an experience that is so filled with sensation and information coming in and it's alive. It's really the only word I could use and that aliveness is literally sacred. It feels, and I say that from the perspective of neuroscience. It feels rich. There's rich, a richness. Yes. That's why we chose that as our title, God Can Make You Rich. When you engage in spiritual practices, when you bring yourself into the present moment, when you allow yourself to look at what happiness is on a deeper level, and when you look at the power that you can do if you have money and wealth, and how much good you can bring to the whole world, you end up with the best of all worlds. With that in mind, I was just having this conversation yesterday about somebody who has been able to manifest just amazing amounts of money and has gaps in other areas. So there's like a deficit in relationship area or, or other personal communication areas? Well... I don't think so. I think that when you come into the present moment, you get much more in touch with your basic instinctual motivational centers of your brain. And that includes playfulness, the desire to engage with other people in ways that create joy. Mice love to play with each other. They even laugh. Oh, this is, this is extremely important research by a man named Jacques Panksepp. The desire to acquire playfulness. Uh, these are, you know, caring. These are core key emotions that every mammal has. And by the way, neuroscientists are now in agreement that all mammals have consciousness very similar to our own. Mm -hmm. We just have more of it, which creates as many problems as it does <laughs> solutions. I would agree with that, definitely. Been having that debate with people for years. <laughs> but what we're suggesting is that Everyday consciousness is very focused, and by doing different types of relaxation and awareness exercises and meditations, you can expand the consciousness, and you can actually see on a brain scan more and more of your frontal lobes becoming active. And then you see the circuits that are involved with social awareness and moral decision-making and empathy and intuition start to light up. And when that happens, you begin to see... The amygdala, the part of your brain that generates fear and anxiety, begins to shut down. And if you do these practices long enough, you actually shrink the structure and the size of the amygdala, and you actually thicken your neocortex. 
We really are creatures of neuroplasticity. Yes, and your thoughts can change your brain. That'll change your view of reality. And it's your choice. You can choose to focus in on the negative thoughts that are being constantly generated and damage your brain. Or you can choose to focus in on the positive thoughts and feelings and actually add two years to your lifespan. That's a 40-year longitudinal study from the Mayo Clinic, replicated by a 30-year longitudinal study from Duke University, having hope, faith, positivity, and optimism in yourself and the world adds two years of quality life. What are the most important elements for effective communication? Well, interestingly, of the eight most effective things for communication, words are number eight. The mm. first couple ones are the facial expressions an individual makes. So there's over 10,000 facial expressions a person can make. You have to train yourself to look at the other individual in a non-threatening way. You can't stare at them. That kind of makes people feel uncomfortable. So you have to have... Again, a very warm, soft, gentle gaze as you, and you allow yourself to fully study the other person's face. And the second most important element is the tone of the person's voice. I mean, I can say yes in so many different ways. Yes? Like, yes, why are you bothering me? Yes? Yes. Oh, oh, yes. And every one of those conveys a totally different imagery. Same is true for body language. So we need to really pay attention to observe the person's facial expression, the tone of their voice, their body language, to use intuition, to not listen to the words themselves, but to get a feeling sense of what they're saying. This makes people a better communicator, and uh, we even create, we created a... CD with a 20-minute exercise on it, and people can get it from my website if they want, and it will actually guide you through this compassionate communication training exercise. This is what we teach to our students. Is this music coming from you or the studio? That you are hearing right now? Yes. No, I don't hear any music. You don't? I don't hear any music. I'm hearing music on my end. Well, it is possible that that if a person gets into the right state of speaking, if their voice may sound mu musical. Either that or you're hallucinating in the most wonderful way, and I wish I could share that drug. <laughs> I think it's the studio next to me. <laughs> it is. I'm going to just put this on pause for one second, and I'll be right back. Yes. So the CD can be gotten at www.markrobertwalton.com. I love the sound of this. <laughs> so you can hear it now, right? Yes, I can hear it now. And by the way, if you put some music on, let's, let's say you're really pissed off at your kid or at your spouse or whatever else. Imagine putting on some fun music and then having your argument musically. Oh, my son, you haven't done your homework. Oh, dad, chill out. You break out into laughter. We have to realize that every form of anger that we bring up, again, 90% of it's unjustified. It's an imagination. It's some memory from the past you're projecting on the future. And punishment doesn't work. Reward does. We were talking off air about the differences between the amount of words that a woman feels that she must say per day. <laughs> right. Well, actually, it turns out they've measured that and found out that men and women actually speak about the same number of words. Now, educated people will speak uh, two to three to four times the amount of words, and that's very, very good for your brain. But the real reason why people jabber on and on and on is because they start talking about things that are wordless. This is the other thing important about words. Words never convey things, you know, you know, what, I mean, how do you talk about freedom? What does freedom look like? You can't hold it in your hand. What's love? I mean, 2,000 years, nobody has the same definition for what love is. 
So what happens is that we start to talk about something, and the words coming out of our mouth don't quite capture what it is. So we figured we've got to talk some more just to organize our own mind, and we have to, you know, overwhelm the other person with all these words so they have the full picture of what's going on. And what we don't realize is that we're speaking because we don't even know what it is what we're trying to say. So again, we have fun with this compassionate communication CD. You are lim- you start you, you agree with a partner to sit down, and you each can only speak one slow sentence for less than ten seconds, and you have to stop. And the other person responds to exactly what they hear, and this forces. In about four or five minutes, you start selecting the right words that convey more information than what you and I are using right now. What a wonderful exercise. Have you done studies on curiosity? Uh, yes. Uh, it's actually part of the current research that we're doing. Curiosity isn't what killed the cat. Curiosity is what motivates you. The motivational center of the brain, the thing that gets us out of bed to do anything, is when our senses tell us there is something new or interesting or different that gives us a little rush of pleasure. Put a mouse in a maze and toss out and put into that maze all kinds of things it's never encountered before, a bottle cap, a corkscrew. It immediately goes over to it, sniffs at it to make sure that it's safe, and then guess what it does with it? Plays with it? It hoards it off into a corner. (laughs) It knows that it might be useful in the future. So what happens is that anything we become curious about, anything that's new and different, releases a little bit of dopamine. Dopamine is the pleasure chemical in the brain. This is the motivational center of the brain as well, and it actually gives birth to consciousness. So we become aware that this thing has given us pleasure, and the first thing the consciousness does is, I want more. You can get addicted to it. You know, if too much dopamine gets released, then we, you know, we can't stop going after those things that give us pleasure. And that would be the case if someone's low in dopamine, for example. Well, we have a different approach to this. We're suggesting that you can increase your dopamine level with some very simple exercises. For example, uh, it's not too late, it's still February, but we have like a New Year's Eve uh, resolution exercise that you do. And before you think about what you want to commit to for this year, take out a pen and paper and write down a list of all the things that gave you pleasure in the past year, all the little tiny successes you had, all the friendships you met, all of the enjoyable exchanges you had, the wonderful movie that you saw. You make this huge list of things that kind of excited you and turned you on. By the time you finish that list, it's like... uh, you end up feeling so incredible. You went, wow, what an incredible year that was. Like I said, we don't tend, our brains don't tend to consciously recall the dozens of little tiny, pleasurable, curious, interesting, satisfying moments that we have. Instead, we focus on a handful of, you know, upsetting thoughts that we have. You know, I have a cold. Oh, no, maybe the doctor will say I have cancer, whatever else. Well, we don't know that until we go to the doctor. But that doesn't stop us from fantasizing worst-case scenarios. So mm-hmm. again, train your brain to identify every negative thought. Ask yourself, is there really any evidence that this is actually happening in the present moment? Make a nice long list of all the wonderful things that have actually happened to you in the past hour or during that day. And this is what stimulates the motivational center of your brain and it releases dopamine. So inner goals really bring a sense of satisfaction and well-being. Yes. As a matter of fact, the pursuit of happiness itself creates loneliness and disappointment. But the accomplishment of small, simple, realistic goals over and over and over again, that's what the brain really, really loves. That gives us a sense of, accomp- of accomplishment, of competency. And so we have like a daily commitment sheet, and we ask people in the morning, write down one small, simple goal that you want to achieve that is achievable, and then write down two or three sabotage behaviors. Then write down, and writing is really important, write down 
several counter strategies to each one of those. And then at the end of the day, you do not evaluate whether you are successful or unsuccessful. What you do instead is that you write down three things you did well that day and why. That alone, if you did that exercise right there, just writing down three things you did well each day and why, after seven days, if you stop doing that exercise, your self-esteem will continue to grow for the next three months. That's the research that put positive psychology on the map. And if you did it every day, continuously... Imagine, imagine your potential to become the happiest person on the planet. Mark, before we go, I wanted to just go over one of your techniques for really bringing the mind, body, spirit back into the present. Yawn. Ah, yes, my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh my God. 11.30 out at your time there, even later, it's it's midnight. (laughs) At 9 o'clock here. And the funny thing about yawning is that not only is it contagious... It actually slows down the metabolism in those parts of your brain that generate anxiety. So you can fake a yawn. And you kind of do this. And you do, by the time you get to the 10th yawn, you'll actually be more awake. You won't go to sleep. Yawning is what animals do when they wake up. Fish yawn before they change direction. Wild dogs yawn before they attack. And the military trains soldiers to yawn prior to pulling the trigger. Really? Such a bullet goes with greater accuracy. Is it a kind of resetting? It's a resetting of your brain. Brilliant. You're giving your brain a brief moment of relaxation. It has nothing to do with oxygen. It has to do with blood flow. And when you watch the test results of someone's yawning, is there a specific place in the brain where the activity is happening or just happens throughout the whole brain? Well, yes. Again, uh, a great deal is happening in those frontal lobe areas where consciousness is. And we, you know, in, our, in the book, How God Changes Your Brain, we have 43 documented studies to show that yawning is probably one of the best things to do. We add it now, and we encourage everyone to add that to their relaxation exercises. We even did an experiment at a local college where we had students yawn for four minutes before taking a test, and their test grades did improve. That was that was pretty impressive. That is fantastic. And, you know, and, and we make this all available as well, not only in the book, but... On my website, you can get a couple of CDs that just guide you through each of these exercises that I'm describing. So let's go to your website again. It's markrobertwaldman.com. Yes. And all of your books are available there. Uh, The books are described there. You'll find all of the books on Amazon.com. But the CDs and the MP3s that will guide you through these different relaxation and stress reduction exercises and the compassionate communication exercise itself, you can order you can order a copy of that and all the money that we collect from this goes to our research. Believe it or not, all of this research that we do at the University of Pennsylvania and Loyola Marymount University, we are all unpaid. We do it because it's our love. Wow, you're sharing this with the world and all your discoveries. I um, am very, very grateful for you coming on the show and you've also generously uh, offered a gift to the listeners of a chapter of the book. Yes. And I have your Mindfulness, Relaxation and Awareness CD. Yeah. If we could play the Two Wolves story because it's... uh, a nice kind of conclusion to our interview. Certainly. And if you wanted to mention anything about that. Well, it's just one of my favorite stories, and it actually is an old Indian story that uh, has been documented back to about 1950s. It's a popular one, and uh, it's basically a story about the two wolves that live inside of all of our heads. How gorgeous. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the show at some point in time. Mark Waldman. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, thank you, thank you, sweetheart. Many blessings. And you're listening to Ultrasounds. We've been speaking with Mark Waldman about his book, Words Can Change Your Brain.
You can go to his website, markrobertwaldman.com. And I am going to play from his Mindfulness, Relaxation and Awareness CD, track 12, which is The Two Wolves. In closing, I'd like to share a Native American story with you. Once upon a time, or so the Cherokee legend goes, a young Indian boy received a beautiful drum as a gift. When his friend saw it, he asked if he could play with it, but the boy felt torn. He didn't want to share his new present, so he angrily cried out, No! His friend ran away crying, and the boy, in his guilt, went to his grandfather for advice. The elder listened quietly and then replied, I, too, often feel as though there were two wolves fighting inside of me. One is mean and greedy and full of arrogance and pride, but the other is peaceful and generous. All the time they are struggling, and you, my boy, have those same two wolves inside of you. Which one will win? asked the boy. The elder smiled and said, The one you feed. We all harbor a pack of neurological wolves in our brain, angry ones and peaceful ones, loving ones and fearful ones. And whichever one we focus on, that's the one that neurologically comes to life. So no matter how open-minded we become, and no matter how tolerant or compassionate we think we are, there will always remain the remnants of these two neurological wolves. One responds with fear and anger, to everyone and everything that is different, unusual, or new. He's been in your limbic brain for a very long time. The other wolf is a compassionate and forgiving one. But he resides in the newest, youngest, and most vulnerable part of your brain, your prefrontal lobe. Every day, these two neurological wolves struggle to control your mind. So the question remains, which wolf will you feed, and which wolf will you tame? If you use these meditations to focus on kindness and love, the wolves in your brain will learn how to cooperate and eventually live in peace. And if you bring that peace into your conversations with others, perhaps together we can all bring a little more peace into the world. And you're listening to Ultrasounds. My name is Elove. If you're on Facebook, you can join me there. Music by Elove, E-L-U-V, is my page. You've been listening to Ultrasounds with DJ Elove. Peace and love until next week. <laughs>